This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. All right, hello and welcome to the second of the monthly expert panel discussions. As I mentioned last time, each month now, I'll be hosting discussions and debates between some of the most prominent voices in regenerative agriculture, soil science, restoration land management, and more. If you're a subscribing Patreon member, you'll also be invited to the live events and the open Q&A for listeners after the panel. Now in today's session, I hosted a discussion on agroforestry from three distinct perspectives with my friends and colleagues at Climate Farmers, which is a nonprofit organization working to advance regenerative agriculture in Europe. Now since these discussions are longer than the regular weekly episodes, I'll keep this introduction short and jump right into the introductions for our three panelists. We have three fantastic speakers, and I'll sort of go in no particular order, starting with Patrick Worms, who joined us actually on the last panel. Now, Patrick wears many hats, including as the Senior Science Policy Advisor at World Agroforestry. He's the president at the European Agroforestry Federation and is a trustee of the International Union of Agroforestry, also a trustee of the International Union of Agroforestry and an advisor to the ecosystem restoration camps. Now, Linda Priel. Linda has been working with Einhorn products for over five years and is responsible for the fair, sustainable condoms supply chain. Together with local stakeholders in Thailand, she has integrated agroforestry rubber farmers into Einhorn's value chain and will be speaking to us on sourcing materials from agroforestry outside of Europe. Now, Paul Bokbenberg, I hope I said that right. We've talked about this from before. Paul is a physicist striving for positive environmental impact who is keen for support or keen to support large scale transitions to a regenerative earth friendly way of managing resources. As European agroforestry investment lead at Ecosia, his goal is to demonstrate the power and potential of regeneration in agriculture. Now, in this panel today, we're going to be going over three main topics being policy, funding, and sourcing of materials and the supply chain. Now, to start us off with the policy portion, let's start with, uh, with Patrick, and I'll give you the question to start by exploring what some of the policies that are either in place now or that could be adopted, which could help to incentivize the adoption and expansion of agroforestry in Europe as you see it. Thank you, Oliver. You know, European policy towards agroforestry reminds me of St. Augustine's famous saying, make me abandon sin, Lord, but not just yet. And much the same thing could be said about the way the European Union is dealing with agroforestry systems. Um, Since 2013, this is almost 10 years, at least in theory, policy in the European Union has carved out some space that would allow farmers to plant trees on their lands without using up uh, the ability to receive the subsidies that they're used to getting. In practical terms, that that, that had no impact. And the reason why it had no impact is because these rules were buried in extremely complex texts, and they did not come with the supporting infrastructure that would ensure that a farmer could engage in an agroforestry project 
without having to worry about what the local authorities would say. As those of you who are farmers will know, or those of you who are farmers in Europe will know, um, the rules may say one thing, but in practical terms, what happens to you in terms of subsidies, in terms of the rules you have to respect, depends on a local inspectorate uh, apparatus, which is not always au fait with the latest details. This has been complicated by the fact that many of these rules uh, have carved out a role for the member states to take their own decisions to encourage more or encourage less the various regreening measures, um, environmental focus area measures that are foreseen in European legislation. And uh, what that means is that sometimes inside a given country, you have to know exactly where you stand. In Germany, in France, in Belgium, for example, um, the rules about supporting agroforestry change depending on the department, the, the, the state or the region in which you find yourselves. Finally, you have a thicket of measures at national and regional and local level which can make life difficult if you engage in agroforestry. I know of one case in, in Vlaanderen, the northern part of Belgium, where the farmer um, used these openings and this European policy measures to plant some trees. In his case, it was poplars in a silver pastoral system. And at the end of the rotation, of course, the objective was to harvest these poplars and sell the, the, the timber. He was prevented from doing so because by then the local, con the, the local borough, the, the municipality, uh, had slapped a preservation order on his trees uh, on the grounds that they were beautiful and therefore worth preserving, but without compensating him for the loss of his income. Um, the result of that has, of course, been an absolute disaster, not just for that particular farmer. It means that in the whole region, the farmers got the message loud and clear, don't plant trees. It's nothing but trouble. And that brings me to the core of what we need here. The details I have now, I have 10 tabs open on my other screen, which contain details of various parts of European legislation and how they support or don't support uh, agroforestry. The problem with it is first, I need 10 different tabs to have them open. Second, in order to give them to you, I'd have to reread them carefully because it's complicated. And third, farmers don't have the time to do that. Farmers require something which is clear and they require support which tells them that if they engage in an agroforestry activity, that the presumption of innocence is on their side, whereas today, in too many countries, the presumption of suspicion is on their side. And let's remember what that means for a farmer. Um, if somebody decides that you're misusing the rules in some way, not only can you use your pillar one payments, your, prim your primary subsidies, but even worse, if you're really unlucky, they might decide it's not agricultural land anymore and reclassify it as forestry land. And that comes under a completely different uh, uh, segment of European legislation, which has a direct impact on the price of that land. So you've not only lost a little bit of subsidies on a yearly basis, but you've also lost a significant part of your capital. Not surprisingly, farmers are going to look long and hard at these problems before they decide that the benefits are worth it. Final point, there's a cultural issue. Um, the places that are in most dire need of agroforestry are those places which have no trees whatsoever. I'm thinking, for example, of the Picardy in France or the Artois in France, lands which are very rich, uh, which are very productive and where you practically have no trees any longer, certainly no hedges. Um, in those environments, farmers will find it difficult, no matter what the policy support is, to actually engage in agroforestry because nobody knows what it is, their neighbors aren't doing it, they cannot taste it by themselves. 
The opposite uh, thing happens in parts of Iberia, Italy or Greece, which have always been agroforestry, the Montados, the Dehesas, these sorts of systems. And when you tell people that there is agroforestry and they should encourage it, they look at you and say, it's just farming. What do you mean it's agroforestry? And so there is this definition, there is this difference in the way that people perceive the same systems depending on the cultural environment in which they find themselves. Now, the European Commission, uh, to give them full credit, they, they are neither idiots nor uh, uh, corrupt bastards. They are fine people who are trying to do a really, really good job. Um, to give them credit, they recognize these difficulties and they try to model and to shape um, agricultural policy in a way that gives the maximum freedom to this. And in the currently debated reform of the cap, which will, with a bit of luck, come into force in 2022, the idea is that it's up to the member states to decide how to shape the system. The European Union gives them broad brush indications about what agricultural policy should achieve and a pile of money to pay the subsidies. But it's then up to the member states to decide what to do in their so-called strategic plans. And I know that a number of you are based in Germany. And there I would like to, to finish the, the, my, the, this part of my intervention by highlighting the role of good lobbying. Uh, the Bundestag, uh, the German parliament, passed uh, just a couple of weeks ago a measure uh, in parliament calling on the government to use the opportunity of these strategic plans to put in place a strong promotional system to encourage the adoption of agroforestry elsewhere. What's really interesting about this is that this is a measure that was supported across the board in that parliament, from the extreme left to the extreme right, from the parties that are in the governing coalitions to the parties that are in opposition. Um, as far as I'm aware, the only ones who voted against it were the liberals for the same stupid reason, liberty, freedom, farmers should do what they want. Um, but apart from that, the socialists, the conservatives, the greens, everybody voted in favor of that measure. And that's an influence um, uh, um, that uh, uh, should be taken to heart by member states in the rest of Europe, because if governments take that kind of approach seriously and put in place the right support mechanisms to encourage agroforestry to be adopted, then assuming the extension services follow suit, assuming the research into agroforestry system follows suit, assuming the consumers demand regeneratively raised products, then a significant proportion of farmers will start moving in that direction. So I'm wondering from your perspective as well, Patrick, if government policies are really where we should be looking to help to shape the future of agroforestry and land management practices at large, or are there more effective ways to encourage best practices outside of governing bodies? It's an interesting question. Um, very often in, in Europe, I, I rage against the, the, the common agricultural policy and, and just dream of a day when all these subsidies fall away, when people have the full freedom to do what they like. And that's a situation that's not very um, uh, um, uh, unlike the one that prevails in the United States, where landowners are broadly allowed to do whatever the hell they like with their land. And so you find that there's more innovation uh, in, in terms of crop rotation, no-till, and even agroforestry in the United States, and it's sometimes the case in, um, in, in Europe. However, we, we are where we are, and farmers need to be um, um, encouraged within the institutional constraints that we have. And from that perspective, that really means um, three things. The first thing that it means is that governments need to make it absolutely clear 
they need to carve a, a bubble of freedom around what farmers do on their lands. They need to make it absolutely clear that a farmer is allowed to experiment with agroforestry on his or her land using whichever density of whichever tree species in whichever mix he or she thinks is likely to deliver the objectives he's looking for. And that he, should not be penal, he or she should not be penalized for that and certainly should not use uh, subsidies or agricultural land classification as a result of that. The second things that states need to do is to understand that um, farmers need knowledge and advice. Farmers know their land better than anybody else because they work that particular piece of land, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they need everything there is to, that they know everything there is to know about how to manage that land as productively and as sustainably as possible. They do need advice. And right now, in the rich world, the advisory systems that we have are largely controlled by the agrochemical industry, who fund uh, a lot of the work that's being done in the universities, who fund a lot of the extension services, and of course, who provide advice through the farm uh, good shop, the farm goods stores, the shops where farmers go to equip themselves with the tools and the inputs that they need to carry out their business. It's extremely easy to get advice on how to use fertilizers, on how to use pesticides, on how to use seeds, on how to repair your tractor, on how to mechanize something. It's very, very hard to get good advice on what to do with uh, agroforestry. The private sector cannot be expected to pick that up for a simple reason. If you, Oliver, have 200 hectares of wheat in Germany and I am Syngenta or Bayer or whoever, I'm going to be making somewhere between 50 and 100 euros a year per hectare from your land. Um, this is a business that's controlled by half a dozen large companies around the world, which means all of the commercial farmland around the world is paying that kind of profit to these companies every year. That's tens of billions of dollars in profit, a lot of which is reinvested in marketing and lobbying. If instead um, I launch a consultancy business, first, let's suppose you're in an environment in which nobody's ever done agroforestry before, you're going to have to decide to do something unusual, which is to hire an agroforestry consultant. So my marketing costs are going to be very high because it's simply going to the shop to buy my products as an agroforestry advisor um, you, I, I am going to have to convince you to hire me. Second, since you don't know much about it, you're not going to be paying me what you would pay a consultant from McKinsey. You're not going to pay me 2,000 euros a day. You're going to pay me 500 euros a day, maybe, if I'm lucky. And after three days, we'll be good, because this is not rocket science. Once you understand the basic principles, and we've looked at your maps, and we've, decide, we've looked at your soils, you will know roughly what to plant, where to plant it, and maybe over the coming years you'll need to call me every once in a while to solve a problem. So basically, instead of making 20,000 euros a year from your farm, I'm making 1,500 euros once from your farm. There is no way this business can work, and that is why around Europe so few companies, so few for-profit companies, manage to make money from advising on agroforestry. Most of the ones who do, like Pure Project in France, for example, still get a lot of public subsidies in one way or another. So you need the private sector, the public sector, to recognize that this is a problem and to pay for this advice to be developed across the extension services and to be made available to the farmers. If you do that, then the farmers will become exposed to this idea. They will become socialized to this idea. And the younger farmers in particular, those who are not yet set in their ways, 
are going to start experimenting with this. And the way this works is always the same. Um, farmers will start doing it on 5 or 10 or 20% of their land. They'll try it out. They'll fairly rapidly begin to see that this has certain benefits, especially, for example, if it's a drought year and you're doing fine, but your neighbors are not any longer. And then you spread it across the rest of your land. And then you have social diffusion mechanisms happening because the farmer who is being successful because he's added trees to his field, at first is uh, uh, the, the, the subject of derision from his neighbors. But after a few years, when he's the one who's doing well, who's got more resilience, who's got different income streams, he's the farmer who's going to be encouraging his neighbors and who's going to be copied by his neighbors. Um, of course, this mechanism of social diffusion in, in Europe is suppressed by the, 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 the policy of the subsidy regime that I've already discussed. But you see it in action in environments in which these uh, constraints simply do not exist. And the prime example there is probably Niger in the Sahel uh, in West Africa where farmers have regenerated over 10 million hectares of uh, uh, agroforestry parklands, uh, not, not as a result of a subsidy or even a result of, a, of advice, but because without the trees, nothing grows. With the trees, you might get a crop. Without the trees, it's, you know, the, 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 the local climate is simply such that it's very, very hard to grow anything at all. So, but in Europe, we are cursed. We are cursed by fantastic soils, which are of great quality. You can mishandle these soils for decades before you start paying the consequence. And we are cursed by all these subsidies. Um, so farmers can continue to do suboptimal management, which is costing a lot of money um, in inputs and generating a lot of negative externalities without suffering any of the negative consequences of that. Thank you, Patrick. I'd like to throw it now to Paul. Paul, could you give us a perspective on how you've come to work with or against some of the policies in the projects that you are helping to advance of agroforestry in Europe? Yeah, sure. I mean, let me maybe just give uh, one, one small note. I'm not sure if everyone is aware of that, why funding is such a, a big issue, especially for agroforestry. Um, so we are speaking about planting trees here that will um, that take a number of years to bear fruit. And even if we plant uh, very quick bearing uh, trees, uh, those will be at least four to five years. Um, but in most cases for, for agroforestry systems that we would like to see, um, we can we speak more about 10, 15, 20 years to have a full, uh, full production going. And so that means that any system we want to establish needs really high upfront costs so a high investment in the beginning for planting those trees, for maintaining those trees, for watering them, uh, all the work that goes into that um, will only be, um, let's say, refinanced um, after 10 to 20 years. So um, this sort of, let's say, this, uh, this bet in a way, because for most farmers, it really seems like a bet. They don't, uh, they don't recognize yet that there's a guaranteed uh, benefit in it for them. Um, this bet seems like a really high risk and um, therefore we need um, both through subsidies but also through investments because not every farmer has that money just uh, sitting around in his in his bank account uh, we need um, money made available for these sort of uh, establishments of agroforestry and uh, this is um, just one one short sentence on, on Nicosia this is what we started doing, we basically propose financial partnerships to, um, to farmers who want to establish agroforestry systems and, uh, and do it in a way that they uh, can bridge this time um, until the, the agroforest starts to bear fruit. 
Um, so coming to the, the policy, of course, policy and subsidy going hand in hand, it's, uh, it's in Europe, it's a major topic, right? So we, there are very few farms in Europe that uh, even conventional farms that are, um, that are profitable without uh, subsidies. It, it's more or less doesn't exist. So um, we need, I mean, the farmers are used to and they need the subsidies. Um, and uh, um, what um, we have encountered, and it, it, um, it confirms everything that uh, Patrick just says, um, we, uh, we, so farmers cannot and won't go through the jungle of, uh, of laws and, and, and uh, let's say, adaptations of European uh, ideas uh, that exists in, 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 in different regions, right? Because in Germany, for example, we have to speak about the federal states and every, every federal state has its own uh, rules regarding the, 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 how, to, um, how to deal with agroforestry ideas. And so it's, it's, it's extremely complicated. Uh, at the moment, there's no public incentive to do agroforestry. It's, it's a no-go. It's, um, it's really difficult. Um, and um, yeah, so we, we are experiencing that in all our projects. It's not, uh, it's not uh, sometimes or a little bit, it's, it's everywhere. Um, we have found a couple of um, ways around. So basically, you, you, you find uh, little niches that work. Um, so um, just to give an example, walnuts, for example, you can plant walnuts, um, but then you cannot do anything under them. So you, you, you by no means uh, think about, uh, you know, integrating walnuts with, with uh, I don't know, willows or poplar or other things that could uh, protect the trees from against wind or could uh, just make a slightly more complex, slightly more interesting system. Uh, all of that is impossible. But if you just plant walnut trees, then, then that's, uh, uh, you can get that subsidized, um, at least in Germany and, and in most parts in Europe. So there are simple things that work, but what we would like to see as agroforestry system and the type of systems that would really unfold all the advantages of agroforestry, it's impossible to get them subsidized. Yeah, that sounds like quite a challenge. Now, Linda, from your perspective, from the supply side, trying to source products. Have you found any policies that incentivize this from the business end or that make it easier to, to find products either in Europe or abroad based on the policies that exist from businesses? Uh, no, <laughs> to answer this question shortly, not from a business side, just to give you a, a short introduction. So uh, I'm working for Einhorn and we are producing condoms in Malaysia and the rubber for these condoms comes from Thailand. Um, and while we were looking for sustainable rubber, whatever that means, um, we found out about a group of farmers in Southern Thailand who, who are growing rubber in agroforestry systems. Um, and, and we were trying to, we said, well, this is what we would call truly sustainable and we would like to integrate those into our value chain. And we didn't know of any other example who had done this in the rubber world before. Um, and we were trying to look for how can we, like, where would we get support from to do this, but also what are like the local realities in Thailand. So I can't really talk so much about Europe and I'm, I'm learning a lot today. It's really interesting from you. Um, but 
from like from a business perspective, like how Einhorn was encouraged to do this, I didn't know of any support. Um, I know that there was some support for the farmers to do this way of uh, growing, but it wasn't directed to any supply chain connection. Well, for that reason, let's quickly move on to the funding side and we'll focus on Paul for a minute. When I'll come back to you, Linda, when we talk more about your work and the business side of agroforestry. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, you had just mentioned some of the challenges and difficulties of navigating the policy side of implementing agroforestry systems here in Europe. But I'm wondering that since there are very few initiatives that ever get the funding that they want to implement their goals, careful priorities, of course, need to be set for the actions and the tools that are most effective. And when it comes to advancing agroforestry here in Europe, where do you see these priorities and these most effective steps? I think there, there are um, three, let's say, three levels that uh, by, by prioritizing the, um, the projects that we fund. Um, two of them, uh, Patrick has already talked a lot about, so I won't go too much into that. And one, so those are um, uh, doing um, basically um, teaching and, and getting information to the farmers. Um, uh, and the second one is to uh, to do lobby work, to set the policies right, to get the associations going in the different countries and get them reunited to put uh, pressure on uh, uh, on decision takers. Um, so this is uh, these are two two levers I think that uh, that are important. But the one that the third one that we are more um, let's say focusing on at the moment and which um, I think is also very powerful is to get um, to get projects funded that. Uh, let's say, uh, heave uh, agroforestry out of a niche and into the, the mainstream. So to, to really establish pilot um, projects um, with very high visibility and a, a multiplication effect um, uh, in, their, in their region and, and beyond. Um, I, I personally believe that this um, inspiration is something that is very powerful amongst farmers, um, like uh, something that spreads uh, quickly. And um, the, uh, the, the, the so bound also to the, the thing I just said about the, the time delay between, say, funding a project today and then it bearing fruit and it being really productive um, implies that the projects we are looking at today, the ones that are impacting decision takers today, the ones that are being shown in videos and in, say, uh, that, are, that are serving as examples, those are from pioneers and visionaries that started a long time before everyone else um, that went against the mainstream um, and planted trees despite all those um, inhibitive uh, factors. So these are scattered really a bit all over the world. Um, they are a bit, uh, they are few in every country, um, but they're in no way really uh, united or, or have a visibility at, at larger scale. And uh, therefore, what we try to do is to um, identify farms in, um, let's say, in hotspots where they could really have a large impact on surrounding farms um, and uh, that also provide a certain scalability. So where we don't speak about, okay, a few hectares forest garden uh, um, run by a a small private initiative uh, of of a couple of people who just like this topic and, and, and um, that they would like to express themselves in, in their uh, in their um, 
in their yeah in, in the few hectares that are available to them that's something great and we, we love seeing that but we believe that the, let's say the, the larger impact in this uh, europe-wide or global transition to agroforestry um, can only be really uh, successful if also large farms switch and uh, so we need to address those large farms and that's a very difficult uh, um, very difficult task um, yeah. so we are for example um, dealing with a farm in eastern germany um, 5700 hectares um, uh, a lot of biogas uh, a lot of milk cows uh, conventionally run uh, until now being uh, transitioned to to organic at the moment and we, we addressed them and said hey why don't you don't why don't you go a stop uh, step beyond organic uh, and start agroforestry and uh, we brought in the different uh, experts from the german association of agroforestry and and started the discussion got them a little bit excited asked them what they would like um and uh, well it, uh, didn't get as far as we wanted to but we at least planted uh, two hectares uh, of uh, agroforestry uh, this winter uh, with the promise and the potential of scaling that up to a much larger um, uh, much larger system um, and the, the the main effect actually of this exercise was that these farmers now are keen to learn more they're interested and what i just learned uh, recently they even when they were asked about their opinion uh, because they're also well connected to the political sphere when they were asked about their opinion on agroforestry in the preparation work that was being done obviously uh, for this uh, meeting that patrick just um, referred to and the, the voting um, uh, they actually expressed their strong support for agroforestry so so that's that's great you know then then we then we did a good job i think if uh, if this type of people uh, supports agroforestry, despite not even having done it themselves, and um, and they're just uh, you know they're just getting started, but they're already so excited that uh, that they they are keen to uh, to uh, to support it. So yeah, um, yeah I, I think to answer the question short, we need to focus on um, on visible, scalable, uh, and multiplicable uh, farms. I think you're absolutely right, Paul, but I would I, I would add something else to that. I think we have to train the eye of policymakers to see Europe is full of agroforestry, but even the people who are doing that don't realize they're doing agroforestry. Whenever you are in a landscape that has hedges or windbreaks or woodlots or you see animals grazing on the trees, all those are forms of agroforestry. And very often people don't realize what they're seeing. Um, then people sometimes are, are, are stuck mentally in too restrictive a vision. In Eastern Germany, for example, you have these large farms, which are the, uh, the privatized old uh, 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 communal farms of the East German system. Um, you do have a fair amount of agroforestry, but it usually takes the form of energy coppice systems. So you have willow and hazel and so on, which are grown in large bands in wheat systems and then harvested uh, for bioenergy. It's fine. It's a form of agroforestry, but people tend to think that it is the only form of agroforestry there is. So um, in addition to encouraging people to consider agroforestry by focusing on these marquee farmers, these pioneer farmers, there is this need to tell the story of all the agroforestry that already exists. 
Um, if you look at the studies that have been done, you find that on 5% of European agricultural land, there's already more than 10% tree cover. That's agroforestry, it's already out there. But yet it's not recognized as agroforestry, either in national or in European legislation. Finally, just to get back to that point you made, that you, you talked well to these farmers, and when there were politicians asked them what they wanted to do, they said, yeah, let's support it. That happens at various levels. It happened in the Czech Republic just a couple of years ago. The Czech Agroforestry Association organized a day-long meeting to discuss the benefits of agroforestry for the Czech Republic, invited half a dozen European agroforesters, including myself, to come and talk about it, made sure that the TV was there, that uh, the newspapers was there, and that had two uh, um, impacts. The first was my mom-in-law, my wife is Czech, my mom-in-law called me that evening and said, hey, I saw you on TV, which was great. But the second and far more important impact um, is that two weeks later, the Minister of Agriculture um, uh, went on the evening news to explain that because of climate change, uh, it was important to build up resilience in Czech agriculture, um, and that agroforestry was a, a, a prime way of doing this. So I, I completely subscribe to what you're saying. The, the, the more you can reach the right people and get them to understand the beauty of these systems, the more likely it is that they will in turn impact the wider institutional and political environment in which these systems can thrive. Brilliant. I want to throw now to Linda, who, coming from the business side of things, has found unique ways of incentivizing sustainable agroforestry in those areas of Thailand, like you described earlier. And I could give a little summary of it, but I think you would do it better than me about how you reached out to these people. And through economic incentives, I believe you've helped to grow the network of people who are managing their land in this way and sourcing directly by cutting out middlemen from the rubber that you source for for the products of einhorn yeah yeah i was sorry when you when you were talking i was the whole time thinking yeah but like uh, making it visible and making it larger it's interesting to see that like we have started working with these farmers and i'm like in this rubber world where everything is more in monocultures and the tire industry is the biggest uh, supplier of natural rubber um every or the not supplier demanding the most of it um everyone is all the time uh, saying yes but you can't do it and it's not economically and you can't do it and now like showing from a business perspective that it does make sense and it can be done and it can be implemented and you can build up supply chains and sourcing from it you can also shift the conversation of the demand side and saying well you're caring about sustainability and you want to change something so go and look for different sources what you might have not considered so far um, so coming back to your question, Oliver, um, what, we what, what we did was there was a group of 10 farmers in southern Thailand growing rubber in agroforestry systems. Um, and through the university there, who was doing lots of research on it, I, I got to know them and was really thrilled of seeing their diverse system, how, how they grew rubber uh, or how they're growing rubber. And um, so the challenge was to find the person in between who would, because rubber is tapped every second day and it's liquid latex coming out of the trees. Um, and then it has to be collected really quickly until it um, until it's processed and then goes to the condom manufacturing. Um, and this, so finding this person in between who would go and work with those farmers to collect it separately, not mixing it up with monoculture rubber um, and working with these farmers on implementing collection points, on setting up systems so they can do their own quality control of the latex, 
So this is all work we did together to, to see like what infrastructure do we need to build to support those farmers to be able to um, sell their latex as a, as a premium latex, as an agroforestry latex and not as the major mix of monoculture latex, which is there otherwise. Um, and through and through this, we like empowered them to be able to control the quality and 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 everything themselves. And at the same time, cutting out those middlemen who were previously collecting it from them. Um, and what like Ainon is doing, we are paying a premium for those for the work they do, and we are also investing into this all setting up all this infrastructure. And by now, we are inspiring other condom. Uh, brands uh, who have addressed us and said hey can we source your latex we want to we want to use agroforestry latex and we said yeah cool as long as we get more farmers and they can like inspire each other and we are now trying to set up a nursery and trying to like grow this group to make it bigger to increase the impact um it's it is inspiring already although it's like in southern thailand and it's only a, a limited located area but if it works there, it might be applied in other areas as well in the future. Brilliant. And now before we wrap up this topic on funding of agroforestry, I want to throw back to Paul to talk about if you've been able to find metrics based on the success stories and the places that you've worked with to get an idea about this initial investment. I know you said you were working with planting walnuts in an agroforestry system in France. Do you have numbers as to what the startup costs might look like, what the returns could look like over time, or just to give people an idea of the type of money that needs to be raised to get started? Yeah, actually across different systems, if we are speaking about fruit bearing systems, so nuts or, um, or even like or apple trees or other um, types of fruits, um, we often see business cases that need at least um, about 10,000 euros per hectare um, to as establishment costs, so including the plantation um, and uh, the, the maintenance, etc., for the first couple of years. And then the, the let's say the, um, the that includes already the let's say the compensation you get to some extent uh, from from subsidies in those first years. Um, and then when you speak about uh, the return, let's say when the, the, the fruit starts to bear, um, typically this uh, investment can come back or can be completely um, recovered within 15 years after plantation. Paul, if but, I can, but I mean, this is, this is a, this is a, this is an example now, like there can be, I mean, there can be ranges uh, anywhere between 12 and 25 years. Uh, Paul, how much of those costs are linked to the high labor costs in Europe? I'm asking because uh, typically yeah. in Africa, um, when we do uh, regeneration or installing of forestry systems, we are looking at costs between 20 and $200 a hectare, uh, yeah. which is uh, almost two orders of magnitude less than what you were quoting. Yeah, all I'm saying now is, uh, is European, uh, a Euro, it's a European context. Um, if we speak about Africa or, or in other places, or in South America, the systems we plant are by about two orders of magnitude cheaper. And that's um, labor cost that sits in all the items you have in the cost sheet, right? So um, basically, uh, from what I just quoted, the 10,000 euros per hectare, that's probably half just the labor um, and some of the materials that you need. 
and then uh, well let's say half about labor and, and the other half is material cost etc but in the material cost for example to plant when you buy plants um, uh, then uh, a lot of that money is actually money that sits um, that goes to the um, uh, what you call that the tree school <laughs> uh, person who basically a nursery, uh, the, nursery? Tree nursery? the nursery well yeah that's it All right, well, that gives us a lot to think about the, the grand differences between regions. And I would imagine there's quite a bit of difference between areas of Europe as well, given that there are differences in, in labor costs as well. Now, let's, let's focus over into Linda's specialty in the sourcing and the business side of agroforestry. Now, I know that there are a lot of companies and manufacturers that do incentivize best practices in agroforestry, both within the EU and abroad, as you've demonstrated, Linda, with your work in sourcing sustainable rubber for the condom company Einhorn. What have been the biggest challenges in finding and sourcing rubber from these polyculture rubber producers? Was it something that was easy to locate simply by asking around, or did you really have to do some detective work to to find sort of exemplary ecosystems that you were looking to support? Well, I think asking around brings you a long way already. Um, and that's what, like, I, I usually am spent, if there wasn't COVID, I would spend half of the year in Southeast Asia uh, in on these projects. Um, so asking around and getting in, in contact with this agroforestry community and the rubber world. And then uh, you will always find at one point or the other, you will find those pioneers or those uh, people who would, which are doing things differently. Um, so it took a while, but finally we got there. Um, but what was difficult or what was the biggest challenge is to, okay, it might be that you've, identified them and that they are there but um to uh, to make this like an like to organize it to organize that they, they they were very like individual farmers and we have like put them together as, as a group i mean they have put them together themselves but we helped them to like um, put up some infrastructure so that they would regularly meet learn from each other build like a learning center um, and also setting up the infrastructure to to have a separate supply chain uh, tracing back to those farmers was for, like for us from a business perspective um, difficult. And now it is it is interesting to see how they have through raising through rising interest of businesses uh, in that area, more and more farmers. Um, are looking at those pioneer farmers and saying, hey, what are you doing? Can we learn from you? So there's actually, it has actually started that all this adoption rate is increasing and the area is becoming slowly a little famous for agroforestry rubber. And in your opinion, what amount of power does the company who is sourcing the material have to direct the way that it is produced? Has it been a real incentive for others to sell their products for higher amounts or to learn from the education center that you've put together? Or are there other incentives that seem more powerful to the producers themselves? Well, I think demand side is one tool because as, as when it comes, rubber is a very uh, volatile price range and 90, 90, nearly 90% is grown by smallholders, which who are like even more skeptical to pr price peaks. 
So everyone, uh, many farmers are looking for like, how can we help ourselves to not be that reliant on that single crop from a financial perspective? Um, but also obviously all this government and policy uh, points are there in Thailand as well. Like when, when do you get subsidized and when not? And how does agroforestry, uh, how can agroforestry work in this picture at all? Um, but what I personally have experienced that when you look at the rubber industry, like 14 million hectares are covered with rubber worldwide, mostly around in the tropics. Um, and mostly only in monocultures and in partly in very huge plantations, which are delivering to one tire manufacturer only. Um, and the, um, the adoption of change there and the possibility to look into more sustainable practices is, is very limited. And when I started going to rubber conferences, people were always saying, yeah, but that's like not economically beneficial and it can't work out and it's too high cost to to get it running um, and now we have pro proven them hey it is running and the yields are at least as high as it was in monoculture and the farmers are happy doing it yes there is more labor involved but it's also like it is working right now so to give those examples from a business perspective as well and showing it is possible and it is feasible to do so i think definitely can at least change the stubborn topic of the limitations of, of sustainability and that it ends with uh, maybe not using glyphosate or something, but that there is so much more to it and that the, the conversations about sustainability from a business perspective has to change towards more re regenerative agriculture. And this has to start somewhere and with showing that it can work, I think is a good, is a good start to work into this direction. If, if I may, Linda, yes, you, you are, you, you're, you're clearly an exceptional businesswoman because you can make a jungle rubber system work. Um, I, I have a slide here on my screen. I don't know if we can uh, um, authorize screen sharing. Uh, we did work in the early 2010s comparing uh, jungle rubber, as we call it, these complex agroforestry rubber systems with, um, um, uh, with uh, uh, here you go. Uh, with plantation systems, and it's it's obvious. I think you can see that now. Um, mm -hmm. It's obvious that the plantation systems are bad compared to the polycropping system. The polycropping systems have more products. They have more biodiversity. They need less phytosanitation. They have lower social costs because they're owner farmers as opposed to workers. They have very low uh, environmental costs, whereas the plantations have none of that. The plantations make less money. Um, they have less biodiversity and they need more inputs and they have higher social impact. So why do the plantations keep on spreading? And the reason is very simple. Um, it's because if you're a buyer of rubber, it's a lot easier to deal with one guy who has a 5,000 hectare plantation of rubber than to deal with 2,500 farmers who each have two hectares and are not only producing rubber, but a lot of other things. Uh, True, uh, but... And so the question that I have to you is, how did you get over that cost differential? Because you had to invest more to deal with the smallholders than your competitors have when they're dealing with a plantation. That's, yeah, true. But looking at, I mean, it does, it is easier to deal with one plantation versus several plots of land. But in reality, 90% of rubber is grown 
in small hold with smallholders. Only 10% is covered with those huge plantations, like 10% of the rubber output. So all those 70% of rubber ends up in tire industry. So all of those big tire companies have smallholders in their value chain. They can't, not all of them can only supply from big plantations. So all of them have to invest in smallholders as well um, and in those small pieces of land. Um, so, but, but it definitely needs more work and more money to do so and to, to get those transparency, first of all, because it's, as you said, much more easier to get transparency to one big plot. Um, but what maybe that's Einhorn is also not a, it's an exception as a company as well, because we are a social business and we are investing 50% of our profits into setting up fair sustainability, how we call it. But yes, we did have a lot of input costs to set it up, but looking at it now, get, keeping it running and getting the huge demand from other companies and also other um, shoe companies, like not the big tire companies, but shoe companies and glove companies and many others are addressing us and saying, hey, cool, you've, you've managed, like, can we learn from you and can we do it? Or can we like, so I think it needed someone to, be persistent and in, I mean, it took us three years to, to finally supply the rubber from them. And while we were supplying, we were sourcing from other sources, right? So it was like a, a full project over a couple of years. Um, but, and yes, it was expensive, but for, I mean, we are 25 people at Einhorn, we were crowdfunded, we have no external investors in, so there isn't any shareholder telling us uh, what you, what we should do, but we can tell ourselves what we do with our money, what we are doing. So we don't need to have profit maximization and full stop. But yes, we have profit maximization to use those profits to work towards a more sustainable future. And that's the benefits of the company I'm working for, thankfully, uh, so that we can do this. Um, yeah. So are you, are you, do you call yourself uh, um, an agroforestry uh, condom company, or are you an agroforestry rubber company? Well, we are. We don't call ourselves agroforestry at all because it's the farmers practicing agroforestry, and we are just sourcing their rubber. But you are certifying in a way, right? Your customers know when they buy your products that they are getting an agroforestry product. Well, right, we are. We are about to get there. So far, we have only we were only very open in, in communicating what we are working on and that the aim is to integrate, to have a condom 100% made of latex grown in agroforestry systems. Um, and now like this year, we are starting this communication about it, but we've been doing this for the last years without, without selling it, we're just doing it. And now it's, now we are seeing that we can talk about and we're not yet sure how we name it because we're talking with the farmers, how they would like to call it as well. It's a like a joint project, um, but it will be something like agroforestry uh, rubber initiative. To what extent did you have to cut out the middleman at some point? That's something I'm always wondering when, uh, when we think about this uh, strategy of including more the demand side into uh, so, agroforestry projects. So for us, it was, so as, as, a, as condoms, as a medical product, it's a very, it needs really high quality latex and it cannot, so rub and latex, when it's tapped from the tree, it's 
roughly 30% rubber content, 70% water. Um, and when it comes from the teeth, like raw milk, and if you don't process it quickly, it turns sour, and then you can't use it for dipping products anymore. And condoms are like where it are dipped in liquid latex. Um, so we needed to make this supply chain from the from the field, from the farm to the processor, because after the latex is centrifuge, and after processing, it can stay for two months or something. But this the distance between farm and processor is crucial in quality aspects of liquid latex. So we couldn't afford to have too many steps in between for the sake of the quality of the of the milk, of the latex milk. Um, so yes, we could have identified also two or three middlemen who would like do the job, but we could we could convince the processor to work directly with the farmers because she is aware of the quality she needs and she's aware of the parameters, how she gets those quality and how the bacteria content of the latex can be cut down and like different, different parameters. And she could like teach the farmers directly um, to do that. Hmm. Yeah, the reason why I'm asking is that I experienced that the, the, the fact or the simple phenomenon as a, that the demand uh, side, let's say the, the the final uh, customer of the, the the product doesn't really or gets involved that much in the way of producing the, the raw material. Yeah. Uh, that's a completely new exercise to many producers. So they are they're not used to that sort of um, intervention, and yeah. um, and it helps. Uh, it can help tremendously to get things going, um, but it's a new type of dialogue. And to organize that dialogue, I mean, for example, EIT Foods, they're also running a new program now in uh, regenerative agriculture and trying to um, to instruct uh, farmers, um, mostly in Southern Europe, and, and their long-term game is, is similar. They want to involve um, large uh, consumer good companies to basically give preferred uh, offtake agreements to farmers that do regenerative agriculture coming out of those programs. And um, this dialogue is, uh, is yeah, it's not easy. I th yeah, and I think, I mean, for us, it was uh, crucial to have, this, to have this processor in between. And this was basically a work of three months. I was just driving around, finding, like, pitching the idea to different, different processors, saying, hey, let's do agroforestry together. You can invest in it, and it would be really cool, and you'll get more money from us if you just supply from them and help, help them setting it up. Um, because because everyone is all like in this in this world everyone was just looking okay how much money will I get to do this and so I needed to find someone and this is what I found in Sudita our processor uh, who would understand why we do this why is agroforestry something beneficial for our planet for the future of of our children of everyone and so I convinced her from a mindset point of view to work with us on this. And money was also an aspect, but money could have been an aspect for all the others, but none of them was willing to invest time to set it up. And she was, because she, shared, she, she understood the vision of why it is important. From other companies and also other um, shoe companies, like not the big tire companies, but shoe companies and glove companies and many others are addressing us and saying, hey, cool, you've, you've managed, like, can we learn from you and can we do it? Or can we like, so I think it needed someone to 
be persistent and in i mean it took us three years to to finally supply the rubber from them and while we were supplying we were sourcing from other sources right so it was like a a full project over a couple of years um but and yes it was expensive but for i mean we are 25 people at einhorn we were crowdfunded we have no external investors in so there isn't any shareholder telling us uh what what we should do but we can tell ourselves what we do with our money what we are doing so we don't need to have profit maximization and full stop but yes we have profit maximization to use those profits to work towards a more sustainable future and that's the benefits of the company i'm working for thankfully uh, so that we can do this um yeah so are you are you do you call yourself uh um, an agroforestry uh, condom company or are you an agroforestry rubber company well we are we don't call ourselves agroforestry at all because it's the farmers practicing agroforestry and we are just sourcing their rubber but you are certifying in a way right your customers know when they buy your products that they are getting an agroforestry product well right we are we are about to get there so far we have only we were only very open in in communicating what we are working on and that the aim is to integrate to have a condom 100% made of latex grown in agroforestry systems um, and now like this year we are starting this communication about it but we've been doing this for the last years without without selling it we're just doing it and now it's now we are seeing that we can talk about and we're not yet sure how we name it because we're talking with the farmers how they would like to call it as well it's a like a joint project um, but it will be something like agroforestry uh, rubber initiative. What extent did you have to cut out the middleman at some point? That's something I'm always wondering when uh, when we think about this uh, strategy of including more the demand side into uh, so, agroforestry projects. So for us, it was so as as a, as condoms as a medical product. It's a very it needs really high quality latex, and it cannot. So rub and latex, when it's tapped from the tree, it's roughly 30% rubber content, 70% water. Um, and when it comes from the tea, it's like raw milk. And if you don't process it quickly, it turns sour and then you can't use it for dipping products anymore. And condoms are like where it are dipped in liquid latex. Um, so we needed to make this supply chain from the, from the field, from the farm, to the processor because after process the latex is centrifuge and after processing it can stay for two months or something but this the distance between farm and processor is crucial in quality aspects of liquid latex so we couldn't afford to have too many steps in between for the sake of the quality of the of the milk of the latex milk um, so yes we could have identified also two or three middlemen who would like do the job but we could we could convince the processor to work directly with the farmers because she is aware of the quality she needs and she's aware of the parameters how she gets those quality and how the bacterial content of the latex can be cut down and like different different parameters and she could like teach the farmers directly um, to do that hmm. Yeah, the reason why I'm asking is that I experienced that the, the the fact or the simple phenomenon as a that the demand uh, side, let's say the, the 
the final uh, customer of the, the the product doesn't really or gets involved that much in the way of producing the, the raw material yeah. uh, that's a completely new exercise to many producers so they are they're not used to that sort of um, intervention and yeah. um, and it helps uh, it can help tremendously to get things going um, but it's a new type of dialogue and to organize that dialogue i mean for example eit food they're also running a new program now in uh, regenerative agriculture and trying to um, to instruct uh, farmers um, mostly in southern europe and, and their long-term game is, is similar they want to involve um, large uh, consumer good companies to basically give preferred uh, offtake agreements to farmers that do regenerative agriculture coming out of those programs and um, this dialogue is uh, is yeah easy I th yeah and i think i mean for us it was uh, crucial to have this to have this processor in between and this was basically a work of three months i was just driving around finding like pitching the idea to different different processors saying hey let's do agroforestry together you can invest in it and it would be really cool and you'll get more money from us if you just supply from them and help help them setting it up um Because because everyone is all like in this in this world, everyone was just looking, okay, how much money will I get to do this? And so I needed to find someone, and this is what I found in Sudita, our processor, uh, who would understand why we do this. Why is agroforestry something beneficial for our planet, for the future of, of our children, of everyone? And so I convinced her from a mindset point of view to work with us on this. And money was also an aspect, but money could have been an aspect for all the others, but none of them was willing to invest time to set it up. And she was, because she, shared, she, she understood the vision of why it is important. Thanks once again to the three panelists, Patrick, Paul, and Linda, who are all working tirelessly to create a healthier, more equitable supply system and land management practices in Europe and around the world. And a special thanks to the team at Climate Farmers for organizing the event and to all the wonderful people who showed up and participated in the chat. Now, as great as it is to include multiple experience perspectives on the topics that we covered in this panel, it's impossible to include the full range of opinions and viewpoints out there. And that's why I'm inviting you to join the growing community building regenerative skills to use in their daily lives. It will always be free to join, and all you have to do is follow the links on the homepage of the Regenerative Skills website. The benefit of joining through our Discord channel is that unlike social media platforms that mine your personal data and manipulate your feeds based on algorithms just to sell you more junk, I founded these channels purely for knowledge, skill, and story exchange between the people who care to make their worlds better for everyone. This week's question, which we'll be discussing on the forum, is what products that you use regularly already come from tree and perennial plant products? There are so many ways to positively affect the production and consumption systems that we participate in, and I can't wait to hear about your ideas. So don't forget, you can also help to guide the panel discussions that I've got planned for the future by suggesting topics and guests on the forums as well. That's our show for this week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. Thank you very much, everybody. I'm still on coffee. I'm way too serious. <laughs>